Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Here's a question. How much, on average, do you pay for a concert ticket? I guess it all depends on how big the band is. Could be anywhere from uh, 5 bucks to 500 or more. But have you ever wondered how that money is divvied up? It takes a lot of people to stage a concert, so the money for a single ticket gets divided into many parts. The artist gets some, the promoter gets their slice, the venue gets a bit, the ticket seller gets a taste, and an increasing amount goes to the insurance company. It's not only expensive to put on a concert or a tour, but it's also risky. There's the whole issue of liability. If a fan gets hurt or killed, the resulting lawsuits can be crippling. You need insurance, you know, just in case something awful happens. And awful things do happen. And as a result, the actuarial tables have been rewritten to reflect what the insurance folks believe to be an increased risk. Insurance premiums go up, and these costs are passed along to the fans in the form of increased ticket prices. No one goes to or holds a concert with the idea of anyone being hurt, but stuff happens. Well, what kind of stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and this is a program that was prompted by an email I got from a listener from Edmonton whose friend was paralyzed in an accident at a concert. A fight broke out on the road behind him, spilled over on top of him, and the guy fell over and, snap, broke his neck. He's now a quadriplegic. Poor guy's life is shattered, all due to an accident at a rock concert that was in no way his fault. Now, it's true that everything in life comes with risk, but maybe what you're about to hear will make things a little safer the next time you go to a show. The first infamous event in the list of fans and fatalities happened at the Altamont Speedway Free Festival. This was a racetrack in Northern California, and the date was Saturday, December 6th, 1969. This was before the era of professional security. The Hells Angels, the motorcycle gang, was hired by the Rolling Stones to watch out over their set. They were paid $500 and all the beer they could drink. Just as the Stones were wrapping up the song Under My Thumb, a commotion broke out a few rows back from the stage. An 18-year-old guy named Meredith Hunter had a gun and allegedly pointed it at the stage. The Hells Angels reacted by stabbing him five times and kicking him to death. And because the concert was being filmed, no fewer than three cameras caught the whole thing. A biker named Alan Passero was arrested and tried for Hunter's murder, but he was acquitted when the jury agreed that he acted in self-defense. But even then, the case wasn't formally closed until May of 2005. The Altamont event formally killed the peace and love vibe of the 1960s. After that, promoters began to hire professional security companies for crowd control. From that point, we can skip ahead to December the 3rd, 1979, almost 10 years to the day, when 11 people were trampled to death while stampeding for a good spot in a general admission area for a Who concert in Cincinnati. 
After this tragedy, a number of new rules were enacted around the world. The number of tickets available for a show are limited, based on the square footage of the venue. There were new rules involving the use of ushers and security personnel, and evacuation plans were drawn up. But even with all these precautions in place, accidents, injuries, and deaths have continued to happen. According to a study on the subject, 136 people died at rock concerts around the world between 1974 and 2003, and many, many, many others have been injured. So what follows here is a semi-random selection of tragic incidents involving rock shows. Now here's one involving Everclear when they played a show in Boston and members of the New England Patriots showed up. The date is November the 13th of 1997. Everclear was playing a show at a club called The Paradise. Everything was going just great. And down front in the mosh pit were three members of the Patriots. Quarterback Drew Bledsoe, backup quarterback Scott Zolak, and offensive lineman Max Lane. Add it all up, these guys weighed 741 pounds. Lane, the lineman, was the biggest. He weighed 305. At some point in the show, these guys decided that they would do what everyone else in the pit was doing. In fact, they thought that Everclear singer Art Alexicus had invited them up on stage to give it a whirl. But gravity dictated an unwanted vector for the 305-pound Max Lane. When he arced off the stage, if you can call it that, he landed on 23-year-old Tamika Messier. She got crushed. She suffered injuries to her neck and shoulders and arms. She was rushed to hospital where she had surgery to remove two herniated discs and to fuse three vertebrae together. On December 10, 1997, Tamika filed a lawsuit against the club, Max Lane, Drew Bledsoe, and Everclear. She wanted damages for her injuries. And things dragged on for almost two years. But then in March of 1999, a settlement was reached. $1.2 million. Most of the money came from Max Lane and Drew Bledsoe, although Everclear had to contribute to the settlement too. And that bit of business hit them where it really hurts. In Everclear's premiums, for their liability insurance. Everclear, a band that ended up with higher insurance premiums because of an NFL lineman. Staging a music festival is a complicated thing. Whenever you have the population of a decent-sized city hanging around a field for a day or a weekend, you're going to have challenges. You add in heat, poor sanitation, rain, drugs, alcohol. Things can get out of control pretty quickly. Take the case of the 30th anniversary Woodstock concert in Rome, New York on July 23rd, 24th, and 25th of 1999. This event was held at an old Air Force base that had been declared, believe it or not, a hazardous waste site. Temperatures were in the high 30s, and because it was an Air Force base, there were miles and miles and miles of hot concrete and asphalt. And because it was an Air Force base, there weren't exactly a lot of trees or places with shade. So why was the show held there in the first place? Well, because Air Force bases tend to have a defensible perimeter. No gate crashers. Things were screwed up from the start. 
Planners really messed up. High ticket prices. People stood in line for the fountains for hours. All the portable toilets overflowed. Even some of the security people hired for the gig walked off the job. They just couldn't stand it. You couldn't bring in your own food. And when you got on site, you found that a bottle of water was four bucks. And if you wanted a bag of ice, it was 15 bucks. But those prices were set by the organizers, not the vendors, not the people selling the stuff. When the vendors asked if they could cut people some slack, the Woodstock people said, no, no, that'll cut into our profits. You sell them for the prices we tell you to sell them for. The frustration of the 200,000 people in attendance quickly grew into hatred. And the hatred turned into violence. And by Sunday, it was downright scary and dangerous. The mob began to take over, probably starting on the Saturday night when Limp Bizkit played their song, Break Stuff. But the real violence began when the Chili Peppers took the stage on Sunday night. A peace group called PAX had given away 100,000 candles with the idea of holding a Sunday night candlelit vigil during the Pepper set. But the mob, who had grown large and very ugly by this time, used the candles to set everything on fire. Vendor booths were looted and then went up in flames. Bonfires were started with piles of empty water bottles. The walls surrounding the site were made up of 12-foot sheets of plywood, and they burned real good, too. The on-site ATM machines were savaged. Merchandise tables and storage areas were cleaned out and then burned. Even one of the speaker towers was set on fire and then toppled over. MTV described the scene as a concentration camp. It was ultra, ultra ugly. And it was probably a really bad idea for the Chili Peppers to launch into their cover of Jimi Hendrix's Fire which, of course, only encouraged more fire. Hey, guys. Calm down a minute. Whoa. Whoa. As you can see, if you look behind you, we have a bit of a problem. Chili peppers are going to come back. Calm down. We got three days through. We need... Calm down. We don't want anybody to get hurt. It's a delay tower. It's on fire, as you can see. It's not part of the show. It really is a problem. So the fire department's gonna have to come in with a fire truck to put the fire out. If everybody can cooperate for the good firemen that are gonna help, we'd appreciate it. You guys back there, all the way back near the fire, if you can hear me, back away. There's only a couple of hundred thousand of you guys, but we need your help. So let's back away. Let's let the fire department do their job. And make sure nobody gets hurt. We'll be ready to go in just a little while. You want to do it? You want to do it? After all the dust cleared at Woodstock 99, only six people were injured and seven were arrested. But at least five rapes were reported, most of which apparently occurred in the mosh pit in front of the main stage. One witness reported a gang rape. Five guys, one woman. The investigations that followed resulted in a total of 39 additional arrests on charges that ranged from disorderly conduct to, wait for it, 
sodomy. And there was at least one death. A 31-year-old man from St. Petersburg, Florida, died of heat exhaustion complicated by diabetes. Bottom line is that the Woodstock 99 Festival has gone down in history as one of the worst events of its kind ever. Remember how Limp Bizkit got some of the blame for inciting violence during their set? Well, they also soon ran into more trouble at a show where someone died. A major cause of death is what some investigators call front-of-stage crush. This is when the crowd surges forward to the barrier separating the audience from the stage. People are either crushed against the barricade or against each other. Some fall and are trampled. And in some cases, there's what security people call a crowd collapse, where a lot of people suddenly go down very quickly. An example is the so-called Donington disaster of August the 28th of 1988. That was the date of a big outdoor show at a racetrack in England called Donington Park. That gig featured Guns N' Roses, David Lee Roth, Kiss, and Iron Maiden. During the gunner set, two bodies were pulled from a crowd collapse situation. Two guys died because they ended up at the bottom of the pile, face down in four inches of mud. They were so deep in the muck that they literally had to be dug out. And they were dead on arrival at hospital. The Smashing Pumpkins are another group who have seen their fans die while they were playing. During the world tour for the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album in 1996, the group stopped at the Point Theatre in Dublin, Ireland on May the 11th. In the audience of about 7,000 people was 17-year-old Bernadette O'Brien, and she, like a lot of other people, rushed into the mosh pit as the Pumpkins began to play at around 9.30. A few minutes later, Billy Corgan stopped and asked the crowd to stop the crush. Then, at 10 o'clock, Billy stepped to the mic and said, I'm sorry, we can't play on. The gig's over. There's a girl who's nearly dying. We, as human beings, cannot play up here while people are getting hurt down there. Bernadette had, in fact, been crushed, and she died the next day of massive internal injuries. Her organs had literally been squished inside her by the weight of all the other people around. Bernadette's friend and two cousins were also hurt, but they recovered. The world is a vampire. The death of Bernadette O'Brien wasn't the only audience tragedy faced by the Smashing Pumpkins. On September 24, 2007, 20-year-old Kenny Leung went to a Pumpkins gig at the P&E Coliseum in Vancouver. He, too, was in the mosh pit, but was dragged out by security when it was obvious that something was very wrong. He was unconscious, but not bleeding or injured in any obvious way. And when he died, an autopsy couldn't connect Kenny's death to crowd surfing or moshing. Something just went wrong while he was up front. The Southern Hemisphere's major traveling festival event is called the Big Day Out. It cuts through Australia and New Zealand during their summer, which is January and February. On January 21st of 2001, the festival pulled into Sydney. Between 55,000 and 65,000 people were there to see bands like Coldplay, Black Eyed Peas, Queens of the Stone Age, and the headliner, Limp Bizkit. Singer Fred Durst went into the show a little apprehensive. He had concerns about security measures. He didn't think that the barrier arrangements were adequate or safe. He talked to the promoter several times, and every time he said he was assured that things were under control. But when Fred and the guys took to the stage, it was at the end of a day where the temperature touched close to 50 degrees. There was a massive, massive crush towards the stage during the first song. Some 30 people were hurt almost immediately. The band stopped playing several times to urge the crowd to calm down and to step back. 15-year-old Jessica Milicic was pulled out of that mosh pit. 
She was clinically dead when the paramedics got to her, but they were able to revive her long enough to get her to the hospital. But it was too late. After five days on life support, she died, and cause of her death was a heart attack caused by asphyxiation. An investigation followed, charges were considered but never filed, and on November the 8th of 2002, more than a year later, Sydney police closed the case for good. But new rules were put in place for security and barriers. Fast postscript to Jessica Michalik. In the years after her death of their only child, her parents, George and Patricia, separated. And in November of 2004, the family filed a civil suit against Limp Bizkit. Meanwhile, Limp Bizkit was also sued by their insurance company, alleging that the legal fees the group had to spend while fighting these lawsuits wasn't covered by their policy. So, is it any wonder we haven't heard anything from Limp Bizkit since then? Coincidence? Probably not. Other bands who have had real scares with front-of-stage crushes include System of a Down, who saw 23 fans injured during the 2003 Leeds Festival. And then there's the event that almost caused Pearl Jam to pack it in for good. It was the Roskilde tragedy. Roskilde is held in Denmark in late June. It began in 1971 as an attempt to emulate Woodstock. Over the years, it evolved from this hippie gathering to an event which booked some very cool and very edgy acts. People come from all over Europe to check things out. U2 and Elvis Costello got big career boosts by playing Roskilde early on. And over the years, Roskilde has featured The Cure and Radiohead and Pearl Jam. It was June 30th of 2000, a Friday. Day two of a four-day festival. It had been raining really hard, and the 100,000 people in the field were soaked and there were some concerns about safety. Both Oasis and the Pet Shop Boys had canceled their sets because they didn't think organizers had their act together. At 11.30 that night, Pearl Jam started their set, and the crowd surged towards the stage. There was a steel barrier, slippery mud, and the physics of tens of thousands of people moving down a slight incline. Eddie Vedder saw what was happening right away. The band stopped and implored the crowd to move back. He did it again and again. But the crush evolved into a crowd collapse, which looked like a slow-motion avalanche of bodies. Ten ambulances were rushed to the scene, but it was too late. When it was all over, 26 people had been injured, and eight bodies were pulled from the pile, and then another person died later in hospital. The dead came from Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Pearl Jam was obviously devastated by the tragedy. Here's what they said that night. This is so painful. I think we are all waiting for someone to wake us and say it was just a horrible nightmare. And there are absolutely no words to express our anguish in regard to the parents and loved ones of these precious lives that were lost. We have not yet been told what actually happened, but it seemed to be random and very quick. It doesn't seem to make sense. When you agree to play a festival of this size and reputation, it's impossible to imagine such a heart-wrenching scenario. Our lives will never be the same, but we know that this is nothing compared to the grief of the families and friends of those involved. It is so tragic. There are no words. In the months that followed, there were many investigations. In the end, though, Pearl Jam was absolved of all wrongdoing, all negligence, and all culpability. Still, the whole thing was enough to make them think of breaking up forever. They didn't, obviously, but it was really, really close. On June the 27th of 2007, Pearl Jam played the Forum in Copenhagen, 
and Eddie had this to say from the stage. I hope a lot of you were there, and, uh, and your friends were there. And uh, I also, we showing such strength to be here, and we were so, I can't tell you, it is the highest honor to have you, your presence here tonight is some of the family and relatives and friends of uh, those who we just And uh, somebody somebody said uh, to me that, that this would be uh, this would be good that this would be uh, there would be some closure and, and I said no there's no there's no closure is that the word in English there's no closure that, that, you know there's no end of the street you know we're, we're all we each have our own road, and we all have these roads and these paths, and, and they're still going. And, and so I see it, and we see it as, as all of us, all of our roads meeting together here again after seven years and meeting together and seeing each other down the road and gathering. And seeing that we're, we're doing okay. And that we've learned things, and we've come closer, and we've become smarter, and we've become better people, and more caring, and more understanding of the world, and more understanding of loss. And, um, and uh, it's just, I'm so glad, we're so glad we had this opportunity to connect like this, and, and, and I, I imagine there's some healing happening, and, and I feel it, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much. A week later, Eddie made this speech from a stage for the benefit of a family of one man that died at Roskilde. There's a, a young man called Frank Nowens, who was uh, one of the gentlemen involved in uh, who, who we lost that day. And uh, he's been missed very deeply and probably by uh, no one more than his mom, who's named Antoinette. And uh, his family and Antoinette and his sister Kathy and uh, some of his friends, they're all here tonight and we're uh, very blessed. And so it's amazing courage. So the, the last few years, on the, on the anniversary of that day, they've, they've chosen to celebrate it. And uh, that's going to be in a couple days here, and tonight they're here, and they're starting the celebration early. And uh, this is a request from his sister, Kathy. Again, we, we thank you, the Nolan's family, for being here. Thank you. scarred by one of the worst concert tragedies in the history of rock. Now that you've sat through almost an hour of grisly stories, you still might be wondering what the worst concert tragedy of all time might be. May 30th, 1999. There was a rock concert and beer festival in Minsk, which is in Belarus. Things started fine under sunny skies at around noon. 
Up to 10,000 people had gathered. There was music, there was dancing, there was drinking, everybody was having a really good time. But then the skies darkened, and it began to rain. And then it began to hail. Hard. Hundreds of people made a run for shelter in the nearby subway station. According to police, a number of young women led the way, most of whom were wearing high heels. When they got to the stairs of the subway station, someone slipped and fell on the wet, slippery concrete. But the people kept on coming, and coming, and coming. Some people were trampled, others were suffocated. In the end, 50 concertgoers died, along with three policemen. And in all of that, 42 were teenage girls. This remains the worst rock concert tragedy of all time. But it was almost eclipsed by something even worse. Before we wrap up, I want to give you one more example of people dying at a rock concert. But this one is especially gruesome because it involves suicide bombers. It was at the Krila Festival at Toshino Airfield north of Moscow. This is an annual event. About 20,000 people go every year. On Saturday, July the 4th of 2003, things were progressing normally when a woman came up to one of the entrance gates. When guards refused to let her in, she reached inside her clothing and detonated an explosives belt. About 15 minutes later, at another gate, another woman blew herself up. She had strapped more explosives and shrapnel to her body. In total, 14 people died. Dozens were injured. Still, it could have been much worse. Can you imagine if these women had managed to infiltrate the crowd in front of the stage? 20,000 people? Two suicide bombers? Um, by the way, Russian authorities blame Chechen rebels. Thanks to Bruce for help with the show. Thanks to Natalia for the work on the website. And thanks to technical producer Rob Johnston. Let's be careful out there, okay? I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.